Section 1 of Ulysses. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Ulysses by James Joyce. Part 1. The Telemachade. Episode 1. Telemachus. Part 1. Stately, plump Buck Mulligan came from the stairhead bearing a bowl of lather on which a mirror and a razor lay crossed. A yellow dressing-gown ungirdled was sustained gently behind him on the mild morning air. He held the bowl aloft and intoned, In Troibo ad Altari Dei. Halted, he peered down the dark winding stairs and called out coarsely, Come up, Kitch, come up, you fearful Jesuit. Solemnly he came forward and mounted the round gun-rest. He faced about and blessed gravely thrice the tower, the surrounding land, and the awaking mountains. Then, catching sight of Stephen Dedalus, he bent towards him and made rapid crosses in the air, gurgling in his throat and shaking his head. Stephen Dedalus, displeased and sleepy, leaned his arms on the top of the staircase and looked coldly at the shaking, gurgling face that blessed him, equine in its length, and at the light, untonsured hair, grained and hued like a pale oak. Buck Mulligan peeped an instant under the mirror and then covered the bowl smartly. "'Back to barracks,' he said sternly. He added in a preacher's tone, "'For this, O oh dearly beloved, is the genuine Christine, body and soul and blood and owns. Slow music, please. Shut your eyes, gents. One moment. A little trouble about those white corpuscles. Silence all.' He peered sideways up and gave a long, slow whistle of call, and then paused a while in rapt attention, his even white teeth glistening here and there with gold points. Chrysostomos. Two strong, shrill whistles answered to the calm. Thanks, old chap, he cried briskly. That will do nicely. Switch off the current, will you? He skipped off the gun-rest and looked gravely at his watcher, gathering about his legs the loose folds of his gown. The plump, shadowed face and sullen oval jowl recalled a prelate, patron of arts in the Middle Ages. A pleasant smile broke quietly over his lips. The mockery of it, he said gaily. Your absurd name, an ancient Greek. He pointed his finger in friendly jest and went over the parapet laughing to himself. Stephen Dedalus stepped up, followed him wearily halfway, and sat down on the edge of the gunrest, watching him still as he propped his mirror on the parapet dipped the brush in the bowl, and lathered cheeks and neck. Buck Mulligan's gay voice went on. My name is observed, too. Malachi Mulligan. Two dactyls. But it has a Hellenic ring, hasn't it? Tripping and sunny like the buck himself. We must go to Athens. Will you come if I can get the aunt to fork out twenty quid? He laid the brush aside, and laughing with delight, cried, Will he come, the Jejun Jesuit? Ceasing, he began to shave with care. "'Tell me, Mulligan,' Stephen said quietly. "'Yes, my love. How long is Haynes going to stay in this tower?' Buck Mulligan showed a shaven cheek over his right shoulder. "'God, isn't he dreadful?' he said frankly. "'A ponderous Saxon. He thinks you're not a gentleman. God, these bloody English, bursting with money and indigestion. "'Because he comes from Oxford, you know, Dedalus, you have the real Oxford manner.' He can't make you out. Oh, my name for you is the best. Kinch, the knife-blade. He shaved warily over his chin. He was raving all night about a black panther, Stephen said. 
Where is his gun case? Ah, woeful lunatic, Mulligan said. Were you in a funk? I was, Stephen said with energy and growing fear. Out here in the dark with a man I don't know, raving and moaning to himself about shooting a black panther. You save men from drowning. I'm not a hero. If he stays on here, I'm off. Buck Mulligan frowned at the lather on his razor blade. He hopped down from his perch and began to search his trouser pockets hastily. Scutter, he cried thickly. He came over to the gun-rest and, thrusting a hand into Stephen's upper pocket, said, Lend us a loan of your nose-rag to wipe my razor. Stephen suffered him to pull out and hold up on show by its corner a dirty, crumpled handkerchief. Buck Mulligan wiped the razor-blade neatly. Then, gazing over his handkerchief, he said, The Bard's Nose-Rag, a new art color for our Irish poets, snot-green. You can almost taste it, can't you? He mounted to the parapet again and gazed out over Dublin Bay, his fair oak-pale hair stirring slightly. God, he said quietly, isn't the sea what Algy calls it? A great sweet mother? The snot-green sea, the scrotum-tightening sea. Epi oinopa ponton. Ah, Daedalus, the Greeks. I must teach you. You must read them in the original. Thalata, Thalata. She is our great sweet mother. Come and look. Stephen stood up and went over to the parapet. Leaning on it, he looked down on the water and on the mailboat clearing the harbour mouth of Kingstown. Our mighty mother, Buck Mulligan said. He turned abruptly, his grey searching eyes from the sea to Stephen's face. The aunt thinks you killed your mother, he said. That's why she won't let me have anything to do with you. Someone killed her, Stephen said gloomily. You could have knelt down, damn it, Kitch, when your dying mother asks you, Buck Mulligan said. I'm hyperborean as much as you, but to think of your mother begging you for her last breath to kneel down and pray for her, and you refused, there is something sinister in you. He broke off and lathered again lightly his farther cheek. A tolerant smile curled his lips. But a lovely mummer he murmured to himself, Kitch, the loveliest mummer of them all. He shaved evenly and with care and silence seriously. Stephen, an elbow rested on the jagged granite, leaned his palm against his brow and grazed at the frayed edge of his shiny black coat-sleeve. Pain that was not yet pain of love fretted his heart. Silently in a dream she had come to him after her death, her wasted body with its loose brown grave-clothes giving off an odour of wax and rosewood, her breath, that had bent upon him, mute, reproachful, a faint odour of wetted ashes. Across the threadbare cuff-edge he saw the sea hailed as a great sweet mother by the muffled voice beside him. The ring of bay and skyline held a dull green mass of liquid. A bowl of white china had stood beside her deathbed, holding the green sluggish bile which she had torn up from her rotting liver by fits of loud groaning and vomiting. Buck Mulligan wiped again his razor-blade. "'Ah, poor dog's body,' he said in a kind voice. "'I must give you a shirt and a few nose-rags. How are the second-hand breeks?' "'They fit well enough,' Stephen answered. Buck Mulligan attacked the hollow beneath his under-lip. "'The mockery of it,' he said contentedly. Second leg they should be. God knows what poxy bosey left them off. I have a lovely pair with a hair-striped grey.' You look spiffing in them. I'm not joking, Kitch. You look damn well when you're dressed. 
Thanks, Stephen said. I can't wear them if they're gray. He can't wear them, Buck Mulligan told his face to the mirror. Etiquette is etiquette. He kills his mother, but he can't wear green trousers. He folded his razor neatly and then with stroking pulps of fingers felt the smooth skin. Stephen turned his gaze from the sea to the plump face with its smoke-blue mobile eyes. That fellow I was with in the ship last night, said Buck Mulligan, says you have G.P.I. He's up in Dottyville with Connolly Norman. General paralysis of the insane. He swept the mirror a half-circle in the air to flash the tidings abroad in sunlight, now radiant on the sea. His curling-shaven lips laughed, and the edges of his white glittering teeth. Laughter seized all his strong, well-knit trunk. "'Look at yourself,' he said, you dreadful bard. Stephen bent forward and peered at the mirror held out for him. Cleft by a crooked crack, hair on an end. And as he and others see me, who chose this face for me? this dog's body, to rid of vermin. It asks me, too. I pinched it out of the skivvy's room, Buck Mulligan said. It does her all right. The ant always keeps plain-looking servants for Malachi. Lead him not in temptation. And her name is Ursula. Laughing again, he brought the mirror away from Stephen's peering eyes. The rage of Caliban at not seeing his face in a mirror, he said, if Wilde were only alive to see you. Drawing back and pointing, Stephen said with bitterness, It is a symbol of Irish art, the cracked-looking glass of a servant. Buck Mulligan suddenly linked his arm in Stephen's and walked with him around the tower, his razor and mirror clacking in the pocket where he had thrust them. It's not fair to tease you like that, Kinch, is it? he said kindly. God knows you have more spirit than any of them. Parried again, he fears the lancet of my art as I fear that of his. The cold steel pen. Cracked looking-glass of a servant. Tell that to the oxy chap downstairs and touch him for a guinea. He's stinking with money and thinks you're not a gentleman. His old fellow made his tin by selling jalop to Zulus or some bloody swindle or other. God, Kinch, if you and I could only work together we might do something for the island. Hellenize it. Cranley's arm. His arm. And to think of your having to beg for these swine. I'm the only one that knows what you are. Why don't you trust me more? What have you up your nose against me? Is it Haynes? If he makes any noise here, I'll bring down Seymour, and we'll give him a ragging worse than we gave Clive Kempthorpe. Young shouts of moneyed voices in Clive Kempthorpe's rooms. Pale faces. They hold their ribs with laughter, one clasping another. Oh, I shall expire. Break the news to her gently, Aubrey. I shall die. With slit ribbons of his shirt whipping the air, he hops and hobbles around the table with trousers at his heels, chased by aides of Magdalen with the tailor's shears. A scarf-cast face gilded with marmalade. I don't want to be debagged. Don't you play the giddy ox with me. Shouts from the open window, startling even in the quadrangle. A deaf gardener, apron, masked with Matthew Arnold's face, pushes his mower on the somber lawn watching narrowly the dancing motes of grass-alms. To ourselves, new paganism, omphalos. Let him stay, Stephen said. There's nothing wrong with him except at night. Then what is it? Black Mulligan asked impatiently. Cough it up. I'm quite frank with you. What have you against me now? They halted, looking towards the blunt cape of Bray Head that lay on the water like the snout of a sleeping whale. Stephen freed his arm quietly. Do you wish me to tell you? he asked. 
Yes, what is it? Buck Mulligan answered. I don't remember anything. He looked in Stephen's face as he spoke. A light wind passed his brow, fanning softly his fair, uncombed hair and stirring silver points of anxiety in his eyes. Stephen, depressed by his own voice, said, Do you remember the first day I went to your house after my mother's death? Buck Mulligan frowned quietly and said, What? Where? I can't remember anything. I remember only ideas and sensations. Why? What happened in the name of God? You were making tea, Stephen said, and went across the landing to get more hot water. Your mother and some visitor came out of the drawing-room. She asked you who was in your room. Yes, Buck Mulligan said. What did I say? I forget. You said, Stephen answered, oh, it's only Dedalus, whose mother is beastly dead. A flush which made him seem younger and more engaging rose to Buck Mulligan's cheek. Did I say that? he asked. Well, what harm is that? He shook his constraint from him nervously. "'And what is death?' he asked. "'Your mother's, or yours, or my own. You saw only your mother die. I see them pop off every day in the Mater and Richmond, and cut up into tripes in the dissecting room. It's a beastly thing and nothing else. It simply doesn't matter. You wouldn't kneel down to pray for your mother on the deathbed when she asks you. Why? Because you have the cursed Jesuit strain in you. Only it's injected the wrong way.' To me it's all a mockery and beastly. Her cerebral lobes are not functioning. She calls the doctor Sir Peter Teasel and picks buttercups off the quilt. Humor her till it's over. You crossed her last wish in death, and yet you won't sulk with me because I don't whinge like some hired mute from Lalouette's. Absurd. I suppose I didn't say it. I didn't mean to offend the memory of your mother. He had spoken himself into boldness. Stephen, shielding the gaping wounds which the words had left in his heart, said very coldly, "'I'm not thinking of the offence to my mother.' "'Of what, then?' Buck Mulligan had asked. "'Of the offence to me,' Stephen answered. Buck Mulligan swung around on his heel. "'Oh, an impossible person!' he exclaimed. He walked off quickly around the parapet. Stephen stood at his post, gazing over the calm sea towards the headland. Sea and headland now grew dim. Pulses were beating in his eyes, veiling their sight, and he felt the fever in his cheeks. A voice within the tower called loudly, "'Are you up there, Mulligan?' "'I'm coming,' Buck Mulligan answered. He turned towards Stephen and said, "'Look at the sea. What does it care about offences? Chuck Loyola, Kitch, and come on down. The Sassanac wants his morning rashers.' His head halted again for a moment at the top of the staircase, level with the roof. Don't mope over it all day, he said. It's inconsequent. Give up the moody brooding. His head vanished, but the drone of his descending voice boomed out of the stairhead. And no more turn aside and brood upon love's bitter mystery, for Fergus rules the brazen cars. Wood shadows floated silently through the morning peace from the stairhead seaward where he gazed. Inshore and further out, the mirror of water whitened, spurned by light-shod hurrying feet. White breast of the dim sea, the twinning stresses two by two, a hand plucking the harp-strings, merging their twinning cords, wave-white wetted towards shimmering in the dim tide. A cloud began to cover the sun slowly, wholly shadowing the bay in deeper green. It lay beneath him, a bowl of bitter waters, Fergus's song. I sang it alone in the house, holding down the long, dark cords. Her door was open. She wanted to hear my music. Silent with awe and pity, I went to her bedside. She was crying in her wretched bed.
for those words Stephen loves bitter mystery. Where now? Her secrets, old feather fans, tasseled dance cards, powdered with musk, a god of amber beads in her locked drawer, a birdcage hung in the sunny windows of her house when she was a girl. She heard old Royce singing in the pantomime of Turco the Terrible, and laughed with others when he sang, I am the boy that can enjoy invisibility, phantasmal mirth folded away, musk perfumed, and no more turn aside and brood, folded away in the memory of nature and with her toys. Memories beset his brooding brain. Her glass of water from the kitchen tap where she had approached the sacrament, a cored apple filled with brown sugar, roasting for it the hob on the dark autumn evening, her shapely fingernails redded by the blood of squashed lice from the children's shirts. In a dream, silently, she had come to him, her wasted body with its loose grave clothes giving off an odor of wax and rosewood, her breath bent over him with mute secret words, a faint odor of wetted ashes, her glazing eyes staring out of death to shake and bend my soul, on me alone, the ghost candle to light her agony, ghostly light on a tortured face, her hoarse loud breath rattling in horror while all prayed on their knees her eyes on me to strike me down. Liliata rutilantium te confessorum turma circumdet, eubilantium te virginum chorus excipiat. Ghoul, chewer of corpses, no, mother, let me be and let me live. Kinch, ahoy! Buck Mulligan's voice sang from within the tower. It came nearer up the staircase, calling again. Stephen, still trembling at his soul's cry, heard warm running sunlight in the air behind his friendly words. Daedalus, come down like a good mosey. Breakfast is ready. Haynes is apologizing for waking us last night. That's all right. I'm coming, Stephen said, turning. Do, for Jesus' sake, Buck Mulligan said, for my sake and for all of our sakes. His head disappeared and reappeared. I told him your symbol of Irish art. He says it's very clever. Touch him for a quid, will you? A guinea, I mean. I get paid this morning, Stephen said. The school kip? Buck Mulligan said. How much? Four quid? Lend us one. If you want, Stephen said. Four shining sovereigns, Buck Mulligan cried with delight. We'll have a glorious drunk to astonish the druidy druids. Four omnipotent sovereigns. He flung up his hands and tramped down the stone stairs, singing out the tune with a cockney accent. Oh, won't we have a merry time, drinking whiskey, beer, and wine, on coronation, coronation day. Oh, won't we have a merry time on coronation day? Warm sunshine marrying over the sea. The nickel-shaving bowl shone, forgotten on the parapet. Why should I bring it down? Or leave it there all day? Forgotten friendship? He went over to it, held it in his hands a while, feeling its coolness, smelling the clammy slaver of the lather in which the brush was struck. So I carried the boat of incense then at Clongo's. I am another now, and yet the same, a servant, too, a servant of a servant. In the gloomy domed living-room of the tower, Buck Mulligan's gowned form moved briskly to and fro about the hearth, hiding and revealing its yellow glow. Two shafts of daylight fell across the flag floor from the high barbicans, and at the meeting of their rays a cloud of coal-smoke and fumes of fried grease floated, turning. "'Well, be choked,' Buck Mulligan said. "'Haynes, open that door, will you?' Stephen laid the shaving bowl in the locker. A tall figure rose from the hammock where it had been sitting, went to the doorway, and pulled open the inner doors. "'Have you the key?' a voice asked. 
Dedalus has it, Buck Mulligan said. Janey, Mac, I'm choked. He howled without looking up from the fire. Kinch! It's in the lock, Stephen said, coming forward. The key scraped round harshly twice, and when the heavy door had been set ajar, welcome light and bright air entered. Haines stood at the doorway, looking out. Stephen hailed his upended valise to the table and sat down to wait. Buck Mulligan tossed the fry on the dish beside him. Then he carried the dish and a large teapot over the table, set them down heavily inside with relief. "'I'm melting,' he said, as the candle remark went. "'But hush! Not a word more on that subject. Kinch, wake me up. Bread, butter, honey. Haines, come in. The grub is ready. Oh, bless us, O Lord, and these thy gifts. Where's the sugar?' Oh, Jay, there's no milk. Stephen fetched the loaf and a pot of honey and the butter cooler from the locker. Buck Mulligan sat down in a sudden pet. What sort of kip is this, he said. I told her to come after eight. We can drink it black, Stephen said thirstily. Then there's a lemon in the locker. Oh, damn you and your Paris fads, Buck Mulligan said. I want Sandy Cove milk. Haines came in from the doorway and said quietly, the woman is coming up with the milk. The blessings of God on you, Buck Mulligan cried, jumping up from his chair. Sit down, pour out the tea there. The sugar is in the bag. Here I can't go fumbling at the damned eggs. He hacked through the fry on the fish and slapped it out in three plates, saying, In nomine patris il filii spiritus sancti. Haines sat down to pour out the tea. I'm giving you two lumps each, he said, but I say, Mulligan, you do make strong tea, don't you? Buck Mulligan, hewing thick slices from the loaf, said in an old woman's wheeling voice, "'When I makes tea, I makes tea,' as old Mother Grogan said. "'And when I makes water, I makes water.' "'By Jove, it's tea,' Haines said. Buck Mulligan went on hewing and wielding. "'So I do, Mrs. Cahill,' says he. "'Begob, ma'am,' says Mrs. Cahill, "'God send you don't make them in one pot.' He lunged towards his messmates and turned a thick slice of bread impaled on his knife. "'That's folk,' he said very earnestly, "'for your book, Haines. Five lines of text and ten pages of notes about the folk of the fish-gods of Dundrum, printed by the weird sisters in the year of the big wind.' He turned to Stephen and asked in a fine, puzzled voice, lifting his brows, "'Can you recall, brother, is Mother Grogan's tea and water-pot spoken of in the Mabinogian, or is it in the Upanishads?' I doubt it, said Stephen gravely. Do you now? Buck Mulligan said in the same tone. For reasons, pray? I fancy, Stephen said as he ate, it did not exist in or out of the Mabinogian. Mother Grogan was, one imagines, a kinswoman of Marianne. Buck Mulligan's face smiled with delight. Charming, he said with a finical sweet voice, showing his white teeth and blinking his eyes pleasantly. Do you think she was? Quite charming. Then, suddenly, overclouding all his features, he growled in a hoarsened, rasping voice as he hewed again vigorously at the loaf. For old Marianne, she doesn't care a damn, but hising up her petticoats. He crammed his mouth with fry and munched and droned. End of section 1